Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hi there, it's Simon Hughes and Simon Mann. It's the analyst inside cricket. It's been a busy week of cricket, a busy weekend, with the England, of course, in action in New Zealand and winning that thriller in Wellington. Also the Australians beating South Africa and some argy-bargy going on both on and off the field. And later in this program we've also got uh, an interview with Stephen Finn talking about the art of one day bowling, the art of white ball bowling. He's involved in the Pakistan Super League at the moment and also why white ball cricket maybe offers something for bowlers in the future. My maybe, you know, some players are opting for white ball contracts. But Simon, we should first look at uh, the England match against New Zealand and how Chris Wokes really held his nerve. And actually, so did Tom Curran in a way as well. England's weakness in the death bowling has been at least partly solved by, by that performance. It was a really fascinating game at the Westpac in Wellington on Saturday. Since our last podcast, of course, England have had two victories because they won convincingly in Manganui last Wednesday. That was a brilliant all-round performance from England. Their fielding was superb. It's the best I've ever seen them field, I think, in a one-day international run-outs. They caught superbly, and then they were pretty ruthless with the bat. Okay, you, you might say they could have knocked them off two down rather than six down, but it was a pretty ruthless performance. Completely different game in Wellington on Saturday a horrible pitch, but in a way that added to the drama. Kane Williamson batted superbly. He was just better than anybody else, far and away better than anybody else on the day. And then it came down to that really tight finish. England got lucky because of that run out of, of Santner. How were they going to get him out in this series? They hadn't done so until then. And then the deflection onto the stumps from Wokes, and that opened the door for England. But you're right, Curran bowled excellently in that penultimate over and in previous overs as well. England seemed to like him at the end. They, they're trusting him. They're giving that, him that responsibility and then works 15 off the last over. He got one ball wrong where he bowled a slower ball that was a half-tracker and Williamson hit it to a, a short boundary and then, for the most part, he got it right, bowling full with long on and long off in long straight boundaries. It was much harder for Kane Williamson to take New Zealand over the line. Brilliant for Williamson, though. He didn't deserve to finish on the losing side. You pointed out about the, the slower balls and it, 
it's always a calculated risk bowling slower balls in the last few overs. And Tom Curran was impressive, actually, because he selected the right time to bowl it. And obviously, you can always say that in hindsight. If your slower ball goes out of the park, then you know you, you think it's the wrong option. And I've, I've certainly got the T-shirt in that sense. But if you bowl it at the right time and the bolt batsman misses it, as Williamson did then you, you immediately think you're vindicated in, in your calculated risk. Uh, I suppose the the key to it, really, was that I think Wokes, although he has got a couple of slower balls, the, the slower off-break is just playing into a right-hander's hands because even if he's done by the pace, he can follow through with his big hit over the leg side and connect Whereas if you bowl the leg cutter or the back of the hander that to a right-hander, that can move away from the right-hander and be much harder for him to hit over the leg side. That's where Curran is very good because I think he's got at least three slower balls, the, the off-cutter to the left-handers, the sort of leg cutter to the right-handers and the back of the hander. Whereas Wokes, he's bowling his back of the hand delivery less and he seems to opt for that off-break or that off-cutter more and that was the one that Williamson hit out of the park uh, over the deep mid-wicket area. So it's it's about having you know those options, different slower balls. We'll come on to that actually later because Steve Finn's got some interesting stuff to say about that uh, from what he's learnt in the Pakistan Super League. But I suppose the other thing is that England have in the past been a little bit fallible playing on these slower pitches if they bat first, they don't put up enough runs and then their bowlers are exposed and not able to defend a low score. So actually having achieved that, a slowish pitch, a, a moderate score by England, but they did defend it, is a step forward. Absolutely. You think back to the Champions Trophy semi-final against Pakistan when they came up against a, a used pitch. Pakistan squeezed them. England actually did made a good start to the game. They are about 80 for one after about 15 or 16 overs, then got squeezed and they couldn't put runs on the board. It was fascinating to watch, actually, England bat because Stokes, you know, who's normally so fluent, big striker of the ball, he took a long time over his runs and eventually hold out to, to long off. It was, a, it was a disappointing shot, ultimately. But he, he was really trying to work hard and you could see them thinking over time, you know, how many is enough here and, and really battling just to get enough because they could have easily fallen short. They could have easily got 180 and you know, do you extend yourself to try to get 260 and gamble on 260 and fall short? Or do you say, right, you know, we've got to be ruthless here. We think 220 to 240 is going to keep us in the game, which is what they did. They just got up there in the end. They actually left a few out there, some careless running right at the end, which could have been costly. So it was a fascinating game to watch from that perspective. England got themselves in the game, 234 runs on the board, and then they were able to... to defend it and they, they you know it, it, it is not an easy ground on which to defend because of the, the short square boundaries and they came up against Williamson who he was in such good form he was so fluent com- compared to anyone else on that pitch it does prove doesn't it that if you're a really good player you can play all formats it's just a question of whether you can survive mentally all the different formats of the game because the schedules now are so demanding. And you, you point out Stokes' batting, uh, you know, that's why he's so important to England. Not just his intimidatory kind of presence, but also his smartness. He does understand the game very well. He does read the game well. He understands mm. what shots are on and what shots aren't on. He's learned so quickly and, you know, absorbed so many lessons that 
that he's picked up over the last few years. Of course, England didn't trust him to bowl at the death. They've, I think they've sort of parked his death bowling for the moment. But Wokes is the man. He, he, he's so cool, isn't he, under pressure? He looks as if he quite enjoys it. I mean, he probably doesn't really. And the, the, the whole kind of death bowling thing is a horrible experience. You know, you're racked with nerves. The, the tension in your body can obviously impact on the ball you deliver. And if you just get that Yorker a foot wrong... It's a half volley or a full toss and it goes out to the park. So somehow being able to, to almost take the emotion out of the situation and be as cool as you can and, and I guess also be philosophical and know that some days it's going to go wrong. But when it goes right and you win a game like that with seven to win off three balls and you hold your nerve and, and you win, it's, it's such an exhilarating feeling. I'd say better than sex, actually. <laughs> oh, good of you to throw that one in right at the end there. Um, I, the point about the, the, the win was that they'd been so dominant on the Wednesday and actually, in a way, that was a much better all-round performance and far more convincing all-round performance, You know, especially the, talk about the fielding. Um, and they weren't quite so good in the field on Saturday. They managed to pull it round. And I reckon those wins are probably more satisfying and give you more confidence for the future, especially if you're batting first and you're, you're, you know, you think you've got one of those sort of in-between scores, possibly a winning score and, and possibly not. So I reckon that, in a way, would have been a, a more satisfying victory, the one on Saturday, and, and shows that this England one-day side is creeping forward. It does just come back to that whole thing, though, that you know, the next World Cup, which they're so focused on, and they, you know, they look they're clearly going to be in contention for it, that they are going to get down to that one knockout match, or the first knockout match, the semi-final, after a whole string of matches where you know, you, know, you could win, say, two-thirds of your group games and, and go through. They, you know, they are going to be, there is going to be room for error there. They, they can drop a couple of matches probably and, and still qualify for the semi-finals. But then that semi-final, as we saw in Cardiff, Last year, that semi-final was all on the day. So if you are winning tight matches, then that stands you in good stead. Well, anyway, England are, are making the right strides. I mean, obviously beating Australia and now up in the, the New Zealand series. That's going to be a, a tight series, I'm sure, for the, the next week or so. Um, in uh, South Africa, uh, <laughs> perhaps it's reassuring that for England that, that Australia have won the first test so convincingly in Durban. I thought that some of the South African batting was pretty lame. Uh, the first innings they got bowled out for 160 odd by Mitchell Stark bowling his reverse swing, and I mean he is good at, at bowling that reverse swing from round the wicket. But I thought the South Africans handled it pretty poorly. There were some fairly naive shots played, and I, I, the, I don't know why batsmen are not more kind of conscious of what Stark is looking to do, going round the wicket and angling it away towards the slips from. The, that angle, bowling to right-handers, trying to get them bowled or uh, caught behind, and they seem to still be lured into these sort of fairly loose drives. I mean, he's very good at it, but some of the batting's a little bit disappointing. And they, then, obviously, they finished off the South Africans in the second innings, but it, it, it was a fascinating session or two of play. Abedville is run out, having faced only one ball, a brilliant bit of fielding by David Warner, and the, the reaction of the Australians was was extraordinary. I mean, obviously they they couldn't get De Villiers out in the first innings. He batted absolutely peerlessly. He was flawless 
uh, compared to all the other South Africans, scored virtually half the runs. And second innings, to get him out like that was just... All the Aussies were exultant and slightly went over the top, actually, with their celebrations. And there was this uh, slightly suspicious-looking incident when Nathan Lyon whipped off the bales and then seemed to drop the ball on... De Villiers' body as he lay prostrate on the ground, which has got Lyon into a bit of trouble. And Warner himself, really, really over-exuberant celebrations of that wicket, and it spilled over into some kind of dressing room or you know, sort of tunnel confrontation with Quinton de Kock, which has got him into trouble. So it's all kicking off in, in South Africa for this first test. And actually, it, it sort of made me think, I wrote a piece last week about stump mics and all the words that go on round the bat and how the Aussies have wanted it turned down because they they don't want all this language or comments being broadcast. I think, personally, it should be turned up. I think it's interesting. It's part of the game that has become so integral, to, particularly to the Aussies when they play. And actually, a lot of the comments are inoffensive and quite interesting and can be quite funny. It's the sort of mental disintegration that practised by Steve Waugh and uh, all his compatriots onwards. And it's, you know, just little lines that, that they come out with are, can really, I think, add to the coverage and make it more interesting and more compelling. I, I personally think that... Obviously, if they're swearing and things like that, players will, will get into trouble. And maybe there should be the same rules governing players and what they say during the hours of play as there are on commentators. If you swear as a commentator or say something offensive, obviously you get into trouble. And that should apply to players as well. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on on the field which they say which could be interesting and add to the coverage. What do you think about that? Well, in one sense, I agree that it brings viewers closer to the action if they can hear what's going on on the field of course Australia subverted that didn't they by when the mics were up or the commentators in the commentary box could hear it they they could hear the Australians plugging um their sponsors in other words they, they were making sure the the mics were turned down because they they probably don't want the mics to pick up some of the things they are saying because they are quite aggressive quite verbally aggressive on the field if you keep the mics up the whole time, then you, you could argue that that stops that happening. Um, the other thing is, what are the sanctions if players are you know, plugging their sponsors? You, you know, it's, the ICC then have to act in that situation as well. So, I don't, You're I sitting don't know. on the I, fence there. Come on, uh, get off well, the no, fence. Well, no, I think what I, what I think is, one well, well, question I want to ask is, do you think that the result of this test match would have been any different if the game was played in silence? I mean, I don't just mean... TV silence, i.e. the mics turned down, but if the players didn't say anything as well, obviously there's been a lot, there's a lot of chat that's gone on and it is, you know, it is the Australian way. Uh, you know, I'm not saying other countries are blameless as well. They're not. Clearly they're not. And we've seen examples of that in the past. I mean, Jimmy Anderson, for example, has you know, liked to get involved in the past, hasn't he? And we've seen India uh, get involved. Kohli, for example. You know, it it is the way that some teams operate. But Australia, it is their, it has been their modus operandi for a, for a long time. They still would have won the game if if the game had been played in science. It, it looks unseemly the way they the way they've carried on in this game, and you know what's what was going on in the tunnel as well. Warner had to be restrained. I mean, we we need to be a bit careful because you don't know what was said. You don't know if De Cox said something to provoke Warner, but I mean, he was really really fired up, and it it didn't look good what we saw in the tunnel. I don't know, it just everyone just take a take a step back a bit and it's it's, it's a game of cricket. You don't have to be 
going at the at your opponent. Use the weapons that you've got, the ball or the bat, to come out on top. Well, that's uh, very sensible from a man who likes his cricket in, in a pure kind of format. I, I, I'd like to have um, the option for the viewer to turn the commentators down and the stump mics up and listen to what was said. And look, if if the players say things, <laughs> either plugging their sponsors... Or, some of it's so inane as well, though, Simon. We, we had the stump mic uh, up during the first one-day international in Hamilton. I was commentating on, on Radio Sport New Zealand, and I could hear wicketkeeper Tom Latham. And that was actually, it was, really, it, was, it was quite hard to com- concentrate on commentating because it was, well, bowl, get the ball in. You know, it was all, all that sort of stuff the whole time. It's actually, it actually quite inane and quite boring to listen to. So there's, there's that side of it as well. And, you know, that is fairly sanitising. You know, from Tom Latham, there was no swearing, there was no, there was no sledging. He was just trying to support his, his fielders and his bowler. No, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But it's not very illuminating and not actually very interesting. In a way, it's for his team and it's not for the listeners. And I actually found it, it was actually quite hard to commentate against it because you could hear this the whole time. OK, well, you, you've won the argument when the wicketkeeper's so vociferous like that. but and, and some wicketkeepers are worse than others. If it's Joss Butler, there's never a word said at all, I don't think, except the old kind of, well, bold dilly, from a, a, a leg spinner from Adil Rashid. I, I just liked Sean Pollock's uh, observation on commentary, actually, that he said the first time he went into bat against the Aussies and Shane Warne was bowling, he played forward to a couple of balls and immediately Warne said kind of under his breath, but deliberately so Pollock could hear, well, oh, this guy plays pretty low, doesn't he? His gloves are pretty low to the ground. I can see one popping up off uh, the, the glove and you better make sure Booney's ready at short leg kind of thing. And uh, well, it wouldn't have been Booney, would it? Because it was a few years before when um, he played and Sean Pollock was more in the 90s. But whoever the short leg was, he was just reminding them to get ready. And Pollock said his reaction was, oh, I wonder if I do play a bit low. And he was sort of starting to question his own method. So that you, it's an interesting way of, of using words which are not abusive, they're just observational from the bowler, from the fielders, but they can just get into the batsman's head. And in fact, Aidan Markham, who made that excellent 100 in that first test match in Durban, he said that there was plenty of that going on, especially when de Villiers was run out. Actually, it wasn't his fault, really, was it? It was de Villiers who just set off for the run, which probably wasn't there, and then had to get scrambling back and didn't make it. But the Aussies would have intimated to Markham that it was his fault, and so they would have got into his head a little bit and and tried to make him realise he was to blame and but actually, in the end, it didn't affect him. And he, he made a very good 143. So sometimes these tactics from the Aussies don't work. But certainly their bowling attack, I mean, was immense in that test match. And I guess it just would make England feel a little bit better that, you know, no shame in losing to this Australian attack because they are very good. They they have Stark's left arm pace and going mm-hmm. round the wicket reverse swing. Hazelwood aggressive, very consistent. Pat coming to didn't take many wickets, but is always at the batsman, so strong at the crease and gets that extra bit of bounce and zip off the pitch. And then Nathan Lyon. So it is a fantastic four-pronged combination. I can see them giving South Africa a really hard time. I I totally agree. They they have a fine bowling attack. I don't know why they carry on like pork chops, really. It's just, why do you need to do it? Um, let, Let the cricket... Do the talking. I'm just going back to um, you know your point about Shane Warne. I I agree. There there are interesting things said on the cricket field. Perhaps you should have a highlights program with just the interesting sledges rather than the, the all the mundane stuff that goes on, all the tedious stuff that goes on out there on the field. 
Well, that's the weekend's cricket summed up for you. After the break, we're going to hear from Stephen Finn. Well, welcome back. And uh, this section, we're going to talk to Steve Finn, who I suppose in a way is, is sort of England's forgotten man a bit. I, I remember chatting to him at the England farewell party as they were heading off to the Ashes in late October. And he was very excited because he'd been brought in as a replacement for the various injuries. Toby Rodan jones of course, was ruled out and, and Finn was, was brought in. And so the Stokes incident also gave him the opportunity to, to be part of the touring team. And he got out to Australia and got injured in the Nets batting and headed home and had to have an operation. And he hasn't played any cricket in the winter since until being signed by the Islamabad United team in the Pakistan Super League in which he's bowled two spells of four overs in the last week, and that's the only bowling he's had all winter in competitive environments. So it must be quite a tough thing for a, a fast bowler, probably reaching his peak at 28 years old, and yet hardly any activity in the winter, apart from a couple of white ball outings where he gets smacked all around the park. It feels as if his career is at a bit of a crossroads, as now or never. You mentioned he was 28 He's played 36 test matches, 69 one-dayers and 21 T20. So 126 matches for England, but he's only 28. You feel right, yeah, he should be in his prime at the moment. He's not in the team. His last test match was in October 2016 in Dhaka. So that's well over a year since he's played a a test match. Last one-dayer, he was drafted in to play against South Africa at Lords in May 2017, a game England lost. And his last... T20 was against Australia in Cardiff in August 2015. So he, he lost his last test match. He lost his last one-day international. And his last T20 match, he was England's most expensive bowler. And uh, added to that, in 2016, he was playing in Middlesex's euphoric championship-winning match against Yorkshire at Thors in front of virtually a full house. And it was an amazing occasion. And Middlesex won the championship. And then the following year, uh, they were relegated. <laughs> So, uh, and, and he was obviously, you know, very involved in, in that Middlesex uh, season as well. So he's had uh, two real opposite experiences, really, in the last 12 months. But I suppose what I was interested to talk to him about was the whole art of, of one-day bowling, white ball bowling. I feel sorry for fast bowlers in particular playing in the T20s and, and ODIs and just being slaughtered quite often. I mean, Finn himself actually came up against Kevin Peterson in one of those Pakistan Super League games and was thwacked for about 20 off and over. And you just, I just feel for bowlers and they're charging in and, and just getting treated with contempt in, in one-day cricket. It can't be much fun. But what he has been saying is that the experience of the Pakistan Super League has allowed him to play with and, and talk to some Pakistan bowlers who are brought up on flat pitches where the ball does absolutely nothing and they have to come up with different ploys to frustrate the batsman and it's been a really useful learning experience. There's a guy in my team called Raman Race who's played for Pakistan a few times in the Champions Trophy. He can bowl the googly, he can bowl a back-of-the-hand slow ball bounce of your test, but he's been one of the best death bowlers in the tournament, I think. So are you learning from him then? Yeah, well, I'm trying to. I mean, we just we don't get that much opportunity to practice in the nets because um, because of the nature of the the hectic nature of the tournament. But um, in and around games, the games I've not played, just trying to pick people's brains about about bowling and about upskilling yourself because I think as a bowler at the moment, if you're not evolving and developing. 
skills, ways to move the ball, ways to deceive batsmen, um, then you're stagnating. And the batsmen at the moment, the, the rapidness of their development in terms of the way they can hit the ball, um, at the moment is probably outpacing bowlers a little bit. So it's just about trying to trying to get yourself on, up to speed with those people. Is there anything that could be done in the laws to help bowlers, do you think? I mean, is there any... Oh, all right, you have to accept the, the, the situation at the moment, but is there anything that... Nine fielders on the boundary. Nine fielders on the <laughs> OK. Um, maybe a bit more leniency um, on, on, no, on I, height or something. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. I think that leniency on when a batsman moves around the crease, um, if he steps inside the line of the ball... Sometimes I think that that can be changed uh, because your margin for error there, they're allowed to move as late as they want, but, but the ball can only just miss the stumps and still be a wide. I think that some leniency in that regard would be sensible. The only thing I can think of is to be more lenient on teams bouncing the ball into the wicket or the wickets alongside um, to try and get the ball roughed up or reverse swinging because actually reverse swing is one of the best things to watch in the game. And at the moment, it's being eradicated by umpires checking the ball every single over to check that no one's throwing it into the ground too much. That's Steve Finn talking from Dubai. And uh, one of the bowlers he was talking about there is an interesting character, actually, Ruman Reis from Pakistan, who played, of course, in that Champions Trophy semi-final, suddenly drafted in for the Pakistan team against England at Cardiff, and no-one had ever heard of him, really, and actually he bowled superbly and showed all those variations. And I, I, I guess the key to it is just for bowlers to keep coming up with new ideas, because batsmen do, don't they? I mean, there's so many new shots batsmen have, have unearthed over the last five years, and actually bowlers haven't really countered with too many different things themselves. So if they can come up with is out of the back of the hand and, and one or two mystery slower balls, that's all to the good. Also, Stephen Finn's point about you know, when bowlers deliver the ball and batsmen are moving around in their crease, perhaps they, there could be a bit more leeway from umpires and the fact that you know, throwing the ball in as well. You see teams do it a lot. They, they do it as much as they can get away with. But it, it is so much in, in batsmen's favour, unless, of course, you play on pitches that, like England played on in, in Wellington. You know, that's the other thing as well. If, you, if, you, <laughs> if the message goes out to the groundsman not to produce belters... But you know the spectators probably come along wanting to see those those big shots. But the, the, it was a far more interesting game on Saturday than many one-day internationals that, that you see. Albeit the England are, have become a very interesting one-day side to watch because they do go for it. So I mean, generally speaking, whatever one-day cricket England play at the moment, it, it is worth keeping an eye on because they've got these these hitters and, it, and, it, and there is an excitement there. And also, they, you know, they've got those bowlers who are looking to to use those variations. Tom Curran is is emerging and, and Wokes now has won two matches for England. I can think of two tight matches in, in the last over. That one on in Wellington and last year in Calcutta we were there when we saw him win that game England didn't win the series in India but they won that match in, in Calcutta get, get some consolation at the end of the series so yeah I, I, I agree with Finn I think that you know they, you, sh- you should be a, there should be some um, thought given to giving something back to the bowlers it's not all about just running in and getting thrashed quite and uh, actually it really irritates me that 
that the umpires are so pernickety about this throwing the ball in on the bounce. And I mean, why why couldn't why can't you do that? I think that's quite imaginative. It's not scratching it, is it, or deliberately damaging it in some way with your fingers. It's actually using the the skills of the game to bounce the ball into the wicketkeeper, aiming for a rough patch. Uh, you know, on the outfield or one of the used pitches or whatever. And actually, there's an opportunity there possibly for an extra run. It might land in a, a foothold and bounce in a funny direction and create an overthrow. So in a way, I think it's just an interesting aspect of the game that the umpires are trying to be overzealous about. And it does, as Finn says, you know, reverse swing is an interesting phenomenon in any format of the game, which does pose the batsman a a different question. And it makes these lower scoring games quite intriguing because suddenly a couple of wickets can fall and the game changes instead of it just being one-way traffic and ball paying total homage to bat. I suppose it's it's interesting for Stephen Finn. His career must be at a bit of a crossroads, really, because he would have had those big hopes of playing in the Ashes dashed by that silly injury. And there's now a, a queue of fast and fast medium bowlers trying to get into the England side. So it was interesting to ask him how his future is panning out in his mind. At the moment, I've got great desire to help Middlesex get back into the first division of the county championship. I've still got test aspirations of myself, of my own, um, which I think that as long as I have those aspirations to represent England in test match cricket um, and have the desire to, to play and help the county that I love, Middlesex, um, in achieving things in Red Bull cricket, um, then and I will always play Red Bull cricket. But as soon as or whenever I feel as though my test aspirations are done, um, I suppose they'll have to, you'll have to look at, at yourself in the mirror and ask what, what you actually want or, um, or where the game's going at that stage. Is there anything that can be done, do you think, to keep hold of more people in county cricket? Should there be more prize money or you know, to stop people leaving the Red Bull game? At the moment, if people, if you want a buzz from playing cricket... Um, and you want to play in front of a big crowd, you have to play 2020 cricket. There's no, no one comes to watch county cricket, really, um, apart from diehards. Um, and, and, yeah, I think that... I don't know what's happening with this new um, TV deal from, from 2020 onwards, whether there'll be more money in the game to try and entice people to stay and play that form of cricket. But at the moment, the, the pace of the game is moving. Um, I think that 2020 cricket is going to be a more prominent force uh, moving forward. But I mean, from a satisfaction point of view, surely for you, eh, just just in a you know, from your personal point of view, the satisfaction of playing four or five day cricket must outweigh four four over spells or ten over spells in white ball cricket. Sometimes, not necessarily. You can take take pride in performances in one day cricket, um, especially when you feel like you're up against it a little bit. Um, when you come out of the other side of those, um, having done well, it's always very satisfying. So. Um, and also, it's a short career. Like, what I don't think people understand, or maybe people who played in the past don't understand, is you, the game is more intense now, fact. Um, you have to look after your body to prolong your career. Playing 14, 16 championship games a year and then everything else at the same time is not the best thing for your body or making the most out of your career. And, and you, have, you have to make a decision. At the moment, I, chose, I choose to play Red Bull cricket because I still have aspirations in that. But as soon as I feel as I don't have aspirations in that, then, then you'd start to look down other avenues. 
So I think that what he's saying there, in a way, and it's 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 a it's a fairly obvious point, which is often overlooked, is that it's tough being a, a quick bowler, whether you're playing red ball or white ball cricket, and you have got a short career uh, because of injuries, and he's had quite a number himself, and so it's understandable actually that you you would look at you know white ball cricket in the future when you get to that sort of late twenties, early thirties. You know the, the the sort of slog of a of a county season of the all the four day games is tough on the body and probably on the mind as well. And actually, you can see why players are opting for maybe just a white ball game. I I think that that also you know I would have thought that the satisfaction isn't as great playing in a a, a fifty over game and and you're bowling your ten overs for thirty two and getting a couple of wickets and that. It's much more, in the end, um, enjoyable and, and, and fulfilling if you bowl a, a long spell, 25 overs, 5 for 72, and win the game for your team in a, in a championship or a test match. But he's almost uh, rejected that and said, actually, you can get as much exhilaration and satisfaction from a tremendous performance in a one-day game. And you don't ache as much afterwards as well. I mean, that, that's the other point. I mean, think about Steve Finn's career. He's been playing international cricket for a long time. He's been playing cricket full stop for a long time because he emerged as a teenager as a quick bowler. That's a, you know, it's a decade of, of bowling quick, of putting your body on the line, and it does take its toll. And you, you definitely, reading between the lines there, you, you can hear Steve Finn sort of thinking about his future very seriously and saying, well, you know, when, when my test hopes are gone, whenever that might be, then, yeah, I'll seriously consider just being a, a white ball bowler anyway. But, you know, he's only 28. I come back to that point we made towards the start that most bowlers at 28 are still in their prime. Jimmy Anderson, of course, is, is 35 and, and talking about playing even longer. So, I mean, it's about, I suppose, you know, different bodies, different lengths of of careers, but you, you can definitely see the allure, especially for a, a quick bowler, of playing white ball cricket, even though you know, you're in for some punishment. What, of course, is important is that uh, when it comes to the new broadcast deal in English cricket in 2020 and a lot more money coming into the game, I think they will have to invest quite a bit of finance in the county championship because it still needs to be seen as... The, the blue riband tournament, the one that people want to win the most, uh, to keep the interest, to keep the, 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 the high-quality players involved. Otherwise, you're going to get a fairly watered-down championship and a fairly average England test team, and that would be calamity for, for the English game because test cricket is still so important to us. Yeah, and you can see... Also, the other side of that is you can see someone like Stephen in a couple of years' time, if he thinks he's not going to play for England, saying, well, OK, that, you know, there might well be more money in playing the T20 tournament in England. You know, players will get rewarded because the, the new contract is worth a lot of money. And you can see someone like him, you can see the attraction, can't you, of, of saying, I'm just going to play white ball cricket. You're, you're absolutely right, though. Uh, it's what I feel about test cricket. It has to be really carefully nurtured, and that means financially as well. If you don't pay the players or give them incentive to play test cricket, then it, it is going to struggle. And lots of people have made that point in, you know, over the last few weeks and months. I've been making it for a while. Some people, Jimmy Anderson, the latest to come out and say, you know, yeah, we, we need to be careful for the future of, of test cricket. And when that test championship comes around, if the players are not rewarded well for their efforts, then the, the drift will continue. 
that's it for this week. I think we've, we've covered a lot of bases and I think I'll pick up on this uh, subject of how do we protect test cricket? How do we keep players involved in both test cricket and county championship cricket? In other words, keep the red ball uh, as being a, a, an integral part of the game. And I'm going to talk to Mike Brearley, the former England captain, about that this week. And so we'll have that on this podcast and also look back at England's final two games in the five-match ODI series and perhaps there'll be some more news from South Africa about that series as well. There's a lot going on in the world of cricket. The associates are playing out in Zimbabwe as well to try and qualify for the World Cup. So it's it's all going on in, in the world of cricket at the moment, isn't it? And also a big upset. Scotland beating Afghanistan. I say a big upset. It might not seem a big upset, but that's a significant victory for Scotland. I'm in Dunedin where in the last World Cup... Scotland were hoping for their first ever World Cup victory. They played Afghanistan here. They got so close to winning. They lost by one wicket. It was agony for them. They might not get to play in another World Cup, the way things are going, because only two teams qualify. But that's a fantastic start for them, beating Afghanistan. But a long way to go and plenty of competition in that tournament with the likes of West Indies involved. What an amazing turn-up it would be if if Scotland qualify for the 2019 World Cup and the West Indies don't. That would be an incredible story. Anyway, there'll be lots going on in the world of cricket this week and we'll be back talking to you about it this time next week. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.